According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew 25 today. Matthew 25. A new episode in our Harmony of the Gospels, episode 13. In Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. Episode 13, the parables, ten virgins, talents, and day of judgment. As I stated before, oftentimes chapter 24 and 25 are both linked together related to the Olivet Discourse. And there is no change of context at all uh, between uh, 2451 and 25.1. It's a continuation of the Lord's ministry. Uh, in the harmony of the Gospels that we're following, however, they did break it down into two events, event 12 and event 13. Event 12 is Matthew 24 that has parallels in Mark and Luke. In uh, event 13, it's Matthew 25, and there are no such parallels in Mark and Luke. Only a couple of places where we have some similarities in some related passages. For example, that there's a parable not quite like the talents uh, the parable of the of the minus or the minus in the Gospel of Luke and things like that. But really, Matthew 25 does stand out as a continuation of Matthew 24, recorded only by Matthew, only the Gospel of the of uh, the discourse that that we call Matthew. And so, uh, as we move on, um, I think it's important that we understand that. All right, 46 verses in this chapter, and breaking it down into parts. Uh, the first 13 verses deal with the ten virgins. And then uh, you have the parable of the talents that takes you down through verse 30. And then you have uh, sheep and goats after that in uh, 31 through 46. And so we'll break down this chapter into those three parts. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, making sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit, prepared to handle spiritual truth. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and we recognize that you did not have to give us this day. This is grace, Father, that we have a lampstand where the word goes forth. We have the opportunity to be here. We thank you for it. Father, we, we identify that you have magnified your word in accordance with your own name, that you hold your word to a high esteem and a reverence, Father, that we, we want to uh, acknowledge here today. So, Father, set aside distractions, take every thought captive, humble us under the authority of your word. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name with thanksgiving. Amen. All righty. So as the imperative was to be on the alert at the end of chapter 24, we're going to build on that here now in chapter 25. The urgency was watchfulness. All right. Be on the alert. Uh, chapter 24 ended with this uh, in 42 through 51. Therefore, be on the alert. You do not know which day your Lord is coming. Uh, also, you don't know what hour. When you combine verse 42 with verse 44, you see them both. Uh, verse 42 mentions you do not know what day, which day. And then verse 44, for this reason, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. And you combine those two, day and hour, in a number of these verses related to watchfulness. Uh, verse 50, then, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect and at an hour which he does not know. You have the combination of both the day and the hour there. 
And so this is where the faithful and sensible slave has to be faithful. He has to be faithful. He cannot become abusive. He cannot, uh, he cannot uh, deny what God has promised. Verse 48 of chapter 24. If that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. You see what happens when you have a low view, a low esteem of the word of God. God promised he's coming back. But this uh, wicked, lazy slave starts to say that evil slave says in his heart, my master's not coming for a long time. He develops a philosophy that denies what the word of God says. And when you get that attitude in your heart, the behavior will reflect that. You begin to beat your fellow slaves, eat and drink with drunkards. Well, this is the, uh, the judgment there. Now, it's going to be expanded in this parable once we get into chapter 25. So let's look at that. Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us, and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went, with, went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then. Back to Gregoreo, back to the imperative that we looked at in chapter 24. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Again, the combination of day and hour that we uh, discussed from chapter 24. All right, so here's what we're going to deal with here today. The parable of the virgins, point one. The parable of the virgins, ten virgins, expands upon the imperative to be on the alert. The parable of the ten virgins expands upon the imperative to be on the alert. Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, you relate it back to Matthew 24, 42. Matthew 24, 42. And probably also 44. If I was to rewrite that, I would do 42 and 44. That way you have both the day and the hour in view. All right, so we have a parable. What have we seen related to parables before? Parables are designed to make a point. Parables are designed to get one big idea across. All right? And in the process of that one big idea, we want to identify the emphasis being made, and we don't want to try to force too much into a parable. It's not what a parable is designed to do. And so uh, there's a lot of commentaries out there, a lot of approaches trying to be very... Uh, precise about the number 10, the number 5. Uh, what do these represent? What do those represent? Uh, what's the difference between the oil and the wick? Uh, what's the, uh, uh, what, what is the activity of wick trimming? And all the nitty-gritty little detail, like all the commentaries you can re read that describe the tabernacle down to the very silver little tent pegs and all the, the, the hemp fibers of the hair, of the rope, of the, of the uh, structure and so forth. And they have such a developed, convoluted, precise 
uh, description, it's, it's mind-boggling because the, the Bible never gives us any of that information. The Bible does not spell it out, all right? And that's where I try to step back and, and allow believers to have a, a, a perspective to say, does the Bible give you that definition? Or is this just your theory based on whatever? Okay. I believe the head of gold in Daniel 2 represents Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because Daniel 2 says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. All right. If the Scripture defines the symbolism, we accept that. If the Scripture does not define the symbolism, we take a step back and say, wait a minute. All right. In general, oil can represent and often does represent the Holy Spirit. In general, that's what it's representative of. But does this text tell us precisely that that's what's in view here related to these lamps or related to uh, the light that's being produced or these wicks and, and things of that nature. Hopefully you'll understand as we get a little bit closer what, uh, what we're dealing with here. It's a parable. A parable is giving you one big picture. One main point is being said. And usually there's a point of emphasis that's making that main point. You'll see that here shortly. So point A then, kingdom of heaven comparisons are made 11 times in Matthew. Kingdom of heaven comparisons are made 11 times in Matthew. And I went back and double checked this because I just, I wanted so badly to find a 12 somewhere, <laughs> right? Oh, I so badly wanted to find a 12th one. If you can find one, let me know. But the, uh, the, uh, the Greek term, the homoios, homoios, um, there, there's other related uh, forms of the uh, adjective um, where these comparisons are made. Uh, the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins. Or the kingdom of heaven is compared to. Or what shall I compare this? You've got questions related to that. Matthew 13 has seven of them. Matthew 13 has seven of them. Verse 24, 31. We're going to look at all of these here this morning and then we'll... We'll uh, use this as an introduction, and then we'll see the ten virgin parable. So join me, if you would, turning over to Matthew 13. Let's review Matthew 13. Seven of the eleven uses are in Matthew 13. The four that come after Matthew 13 uh, are 18:23. That's chapter 18, verse 23. Chapter 20 and verse 1. Chapter 22 and verse 2. In chapter 25 and verse 1, the one we're looking at today, this is the 11th and final parable uh, whereby the kingdom of heaven is compared to something. The kingdom of heaven is compared to something. All right, so Matthew 13. Verse 24 says, Jesus presented another parable to them. Now, this is not the start of the chapter, so you can glance back to, uh, and if there is a twelfth one then, then it would be the parable of the sower uh, in the first part of the chapter uh, where it says uh, in verse 3, He spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, and he's, he's uh, giving them this parable, He that has, who has ears, let him hear. And his disciples came, verse 10, and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? Now, nowhere in that first parable, the parable of the sower, Nowhere in that parable did he say the kingdom of heaven is comparable to. All right. He just launches into a parable. He says, behold, the sower went out to sow. And he starts to teach them this. All right. Now, Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. So if I'm going to find a twelfth 
parable of the kingdom, it would be this one. It just does not have the formula language that says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, right? And so we went out to sow. It does not have that formula introducing it. But when he's giving the explanation here, he says in verse, he does mention the kingdom in verse 11. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. And so he goes on and he, is, he gives the explanation of, uh, of the parable. So he says, Hear then the parable of the sower, verse 18. When anyone hears the words of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away. So it is related to the kingdom. All right. So if you're not happy with the 11 comparisons, just say, all right, 12 and include the first one, include the, the parable of the sower. Okay. But you've got to understand it does not have that language of comparison where the kingdom of heaven is compared. We don't get to that until we reach verse 24. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. So, as we study the kingdom of heaven, we understand that the parable of the wheat and the tares is applicable. It is a comparison that we can relate the kingdom of heaven to. Kingdom of heaven comparison. Wheat and tares. And I didn't list them. If you want to list them, then... List them 1 through 11. Number 1, wheat and tares. Put the verse down there, verse 24. Then we have verse 31. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. So you got the parable of the mustard seed. Uh, often that's mistaught. Uh, this is uh, smaller than all the other seeds. When it is full grown, it's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. And oftentimes it gets taught this is a prosperity theology type approach saying, yeah, we ought, to, we ought to start small and grow big. We ought to have a massive megachurch. And that's the fulfillment of the, of the uh, mustard seed parable here. And it's an awesome thing. Problem is, uh, look who starts nesting in these branches. The birds of the air come and start nesting in these branches. And these are the very birds that are going to be coming along and snatching seed from the roadside in the, in the first parable. And there's actually um, an issue to relate here that's not favorable, that you look at as being problematic and say, wait a minute, what happens as it grows so large here and uh, angelic conflict steps in? There's much more to this parable than a lot of folks pay attention to. Verse 33, the third one. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until all was leavened. And that throws some people for some loot because leaven is a bad thing. And they try to teach this as a good thing. And they end up damaging their metaphor in the process of doing that. In verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. I don't understand what that is. And uh, there's a land there's the, the scope of the treasure in the field is land, right? But it's followed by the pearl, which is water. So you've got land and you've got water between the um, hidden treasure and the uh, pearl of great price. So verse 44, verse 45, verse 47. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And then finally, verse 52. Every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things old and new and the blessings we have. So, um, not too uh, different than what we're doing today, is it? 
because uh, it's like the Matthew 25 one that we're teaching today is the new treasure. We're getting our first look at the parable of the ten virgins. Uh, but sometime back we taught Matthew 13 over the course of, I think we took about eight or nine weeks to teach it, uh, several weeks to teach Matthew 13. Um, and so bringing these verses out again, is kind of like bringing out old treasure again, isn't it? It's like this is something we've already been blessed by. Let's bring it out again. Let's look at it some more. Let's be blessed by uh, more uh, exposure to these things that we've learned in the past. All right. That might be a good exercise to assign to a seminary student someday. Just say, here, take these seven uh, comparisons in Matthew uh, 13 and uh, prepare seven evening services for uh, a Sunday night rotation. All right. Beyond that, once you get out of Matthew 13, we have four additional references to the kingdom of heaven that are described in similes, the term like or as, the comparisons that are drawn. Matthew 18, 23. Matthew 18, 23. And this is where... Uh, Peter was having forgiveness issues. How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? <laughs> I kind of suspect that Peter had something. I don't know if Andrew was the one or whoever, but somebody was bugging Peter and he'd already forgiven him six times. <laughs> right? And here's Peter desperately hoping that one more is kind of the last straw kind of a thing. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And so uh, may be compared to is our Greek expression there that shows the, sim the similarities. The comparisons are being drawn. A very identical language to what we have all those times in Matthew 13 and what we have this morning to look at in Matthew 25. And so there's a comparison to be made there. We've covered that passage already. Over to Matthew chapter 20. We've done all of these. We're, we're now in the 11th and final one now. Matthew 20. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Remember this story? He hires a whole crew the first part of the day. And then later on in the day, he hires more. Later on in the day, he hires more. He's still hiring people when there's only one hour left to go in the work day. And then he settles account with, accounts with them at the end of the day. He pays them all the equal denarius, regardless of whether they were there from the beginning or they just showed up at the last hour. And so there's a kingdom of heaven comparison to be made there. Chapter 22 has our tenth kingdom of heaven comparison. I find this to be really interesting. And, I, and our approach to this is is uh, going to be entirely different than Israel's approach to this because this is their kingdom. This is what they're going to have to look forward to when their king comes back. Uh, we have an approach to the kingdom that's different than Israel's approach to the kingdom because we are the bride. We are the queen. We are with uh, our, our, uh, our Lord when he comes for us and then when he comes with us again. Uh, so what we can anticipate related to the kingdom is, is a bit different than what Israel will anticipate as it relates to the kingdom. And uh, that, that becomes important for us to consider. All right, Matthew 22, 2. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, this one is one we perhaps want to pay closest attention to before we get to 25, because we have, again, a wedding feast going on. 
in this parable, in this story, it's from the standpoint of the king giving the feast and those that are being invited. When we get to 25, we have it from the standpoint of the wedding has uh, taken place and we're waiting now for the party to come back for their supper. And you've got the attendants, the virgins, the attendants of the bride that have a role to play in that activity. Uh, They have a a role to play in the procession from the bride's house to the groom's house. They're going to have a role to play as the uh, uh, attendants of the bride in the the dinner itself. Right. So you think about the. well, wedding services that we have today, ceremonies today, you have the, the maid of honor, right? Or the matron of honor. And you have the bridesmaids and you have the flower girl or, or what have you. You've got the attendance there of the bride. And that's the, that's the feature of what we're looking at in today's passage in Matthew 25. You've got the, the virgins. You have the uh, attendance there of the bride. In 22, though, it's stressed uh, related to who the guests are, the invited guests and the servant that goes out and uh, and brings back those that are invited to attend the feast. And that's what we see there. All right. Then Matthew 25, our text today. The kingdom of heaven will be comp- comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Why is he so slow? <laughs> why do, why are they out there meeting him and he doesn't show up till midnight scripture doesn't say and that's not the point all right five were foolish five were prudent this is the contrast being drawn point b then ten virgins take their lamps to meet the bridegroom ten virgins take their lamps to meet the bridegroom Matthew 25, 1. And this, by the way, this is the pattern. Uh, nowadays, it's not common practice. You're, the, the maid of honor may be a matron of honor. She may be a married woman. The, the bridesmaids may be married themselves. Uh, but that wasn't the case back then. In, in Song of Solomon, likewise, the, the woman is warning the, the virgins of, of uh, Jerusalem not to awaken or arouse in love until it pleases. And uh, there is a a function within the wedding activity whereby the, uh, the, the bride is anticipating a, a whole new realm for herself. I mean, she's leaving her father's home. She's leaving her own virginity. She's entering into the marriage bond. And, and, and there is uh, the younger ones that are looking to her as that example are wondering about their day, about their time, as, as, you know, when their parents are arranging for their wedding ceremony and so forth. Um, so some of this will be cultural that we'll have a hard time relating to, but we'll, we'll, do, we'll do what we can <laughs> to uh, try to once again take us out of our modern mindset and go back to an ancient world way of thinking. Ten virgins take their lamps to meet the bridegroom. Now, just as you notice here, verse one, there's ten of them. Each one has a lamp. OK, each one has a lamp. So there's nothing intrinsically different about the the five that are wise and the five that are foolish. All ten of them have lamps. Uh, All ten of them went out. Um, You'll notice when we, uh, let's see, five were foolish, five were prudent. But how is that evidenced? How does anybody know? Well, it's evidenced by uh, what they took. The foolish took their lamps. They took no oil with them. It's not that they had some, they didn't have enough. Or they had some and it ran out because the groom took too long. They didn't take any even to start with. 
All right, but the prudent, they did. They took oil in flasks along with their lamps, presumably oil in their lamps, but they also took oil in flasks. Um, verse 3 says they took no oil with them, none. And, I, and, I, and none is none. They took no oil at all, in flask or out of flask, in flask or in the, oil, in the lamp or whatever. I believe they, they had empty lamps with no oil and then no additional flasks to refill the lamp. All right, so ten virgins take, uh, take their lamps to meet the bridegroom, but he delays. All right, first of all, this is, the vocabulary is pretty normal, but I was shocked to realize that this is the first time Matthew has used the term virgin since chapter one. <laughs> you know, uh, there's not a lot of emphasis on this in the Gospels. In fact, Matthew and Luke are the only ones that use the term Parthenos. So 7.1, the Greek term for virgin is Parthenos, like the Parthenon in Athens. Parthenos, P-A-R-T-H-E-N-O-S, Parthenos. It, uh, it's one of those obscure Greek words that actually is a feminine noun but has a masculine form. In fact, that O-S ending, you expect to have a... Uh, masculine form but it is feminine it's used to both masculine and feminine subjects 39 and 33 is the strongest concordance number has 15 new testament uses three of them right here in matthew 25 matthew 123 related to joseph who was engaged to a virgin and then discovered she was pregnant and desired to put her away luke 127 is used twice the angel was sent to a virgin and the virgin's name was mary and that's it for the gospel record I was kind of shocked at that, um, that uh, it's all the way from chapter 1 to chapter 25 before we have reference to, to virgins again. Uh, Acts 21.9 is uh, with reference to Philip and his four prophetess daughters, four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. Then uh, 1 Corinthians 7, a, uh, the passage related to marriage, related to divorce, and related to the choice to not marry, the choice to not to, uh, to keep your virgin daughter and not give her in marriage given the intensified stage of the angelic conflict in which the uh, church age operates. 1 Corinthians 7, and there's a long context there, starting in verse 25, going down to verse 38. Six different uses of, of uh, virgin daughter in, uh, in that passage there. And I find that noteworthy. I, I was reviewing that the other day myself when somebody asked me, um, well, Radley and Fallon are getting married, and, and um, uh, Shannon is engaged to get married, and, and there's others. So, uh, reviewing the uh, Lavana's daughter, Shannon, is engaged to get married. Um, anyway, so I was in First Corinthians 7 the other day and considering different applications there and reminding myself of what that teaching was. But the church age is... is uh, not like the age of Israel. It's not like the, the Gentile, the age of the Gentiles. You know, Adam and Eve were commanded to be fruitful and multiply. Noah was commanded to be fruitful. Noah's sons were commanded to be fruitful and multiply. Israel was promised that he would make them fruitful and bless them by multiplying them. The church does not receive a be fruitful and multiply command, nor a I will make you fruitful and multiply you promise. In fact, the church is told that uh, we're going to endure difficult times. All right, then the finally, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 2, 
Paul says, I was jealous over you with a godly jealousy as with a, that I might present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And the metaphor there, of course, related to our role as a church, as a flock, that we are the bride of Christ, that we are to be operating in that, uh, in that purity, in that devotion, anticipating the, the day that the trumpet sounds, the Lord descends, and he, he, uh, he's going to accomplish in us what this parable is going to describe. All right? The groom goes to get the bride. The groom brings the bride back. The groom presents the bride to the Father. That's uh, what we have to look forward to at the, uh, the rapture where we meet the Lord in the air and he takes us back to his Father's house. Uh, John chapter 14. And then finally, the last use of virgin in the New Testament is with relationship to Revelation 14.4, the 144,000 uh, Jewish evangelists that are uh, celibate in their tribulational ministry. They are kept virgin. All right, they take their lamps or their torches or their cigarette lighters, <laughs> their, uh, their uh, light-producing thing is a lampus. L-A-M-P-A-S. Lampus. Gee, what English word do you think comes from lampus? I'm sorry. Let me put the emphasis on the last syllable there. Lampas. Okay. L-A-M-P-A-S. Lampas. And obviously it's where the English word lamp comes from. Lampas. The verb lampao uh, is to shine. It's a shining term to to glow, to shine. It could be used of any fire. Uh, a forest fire would shine. A torch would shine. A lamp shines. Uh, whether it's a, an oil lamp. Uh, obviously, I think in this context, because there you have flasks and wicks that are also mentioned, it's clearly it's not a torch. Uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, they uh, come to arrest Jesus with both torches and lanterns. It's a reference in uh, John 18.3. Uh, where you have another term in addition to lampus that uh, kind of combines them both. And so in that term, I think we do better taking the other term as lamp and using lampus as torch uh, in, that, in that application. Used nine times in the New Testament. Number 2985, including our text here. The only place in Matthew where it shows up, Matthew 25. Uh, in John 18.3, I believe that's Garden of Gethsemane. Yep, the uh, over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns, that's a different term, and torches, that's our lampus, and weapons. So Jesus knowing all things. Anyway, this is his arrest there. Acts chapter 20 and verse 8. Paul was uh, preaching a long time and kept going long and kept going long and they thought, man, is, this, is he ever going to end? When's the battery going to die in his microphone? And uh, But the good news was, was that there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And so uh, they had plenty on hand, and when one went out, they just lit the next one. <laughs> and when those went out, they lit the next one. They kept going. And uh, because he kept preaching so long, Eutychus finally fell asleep and dropped out the window. Revelation 4, 5 and Revelation 8, 10. Uh, Revelation 4, 5, uh, the seven 
torches or seven lanterns before the throne of God, which is this, the seven spirits of God. And uh, the star which falls to the earth is like a, 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 a torch there in Revelation 8.10. All right. Now, the point is, all ten of these vir uh, virgins are expected to, they each have a lamp, and they're each expected to shine light as the bridegroom approaches. That's their assignment. They got one assignment, to spotlight the bride, uh, bridegroom and his bride as they arrive. That's their one assignment. They're all expected to fulfill that, uh, that assignment. Five of them are going, to be, are going to be able to because they made the appropriate preparations in their wisdom, and five are going to fail miserably. Five are not going to be able to achieve their purpose. And uh, worse than that, not only will they not achieve their purpose in shining the way, they're also going to be, have additional consequences assigned. They're going to be banned from the, celebra the celebration. The, the, the window of opportunity to enter through that door is finite, and when they miss that door, when that door is closed, there is no second chance. There's a lot of doctrine there. <laughs> All right? We want to understand uh, how does that work? Okay, uh, is this a church age application? Is this an Israel application? Does this have a, 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 a tribulational uh, reality? I think you know this audience isn't going to be wrestling with that. But boy, you read the commentaries, and there's 20 kinds of confusion out there. All right, the king does not come with his bride until second advent. Are we clear on that? <laughs> Are we clear on the Jewishness of this? All right. So. Uh, the idea of having a door closed, the idea of not being admitted, the idea of being excluded out in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, this, uh, this is completely in agreement with how chapter 24 came to an end, what gets developed here in chapter 25, and what we know from other passages of Scripture. Sheep and goat judgment, right? They're not admitted in. They're cast into hell. No unbeliever comes into the millennial kingdom. That door is shut and there are no second chances. All right. So you have virgins with lamps. And they are waiting for the bridegroom. They're waiting for the nymph, the nymphias. Waiting for the nymphias, the bridegroom. And a wonderful word study, nymphias, N-U-M-P-H-I-O-S, nymphias. There's a feminine form that's not quite as common biblically as numphios. In uh, pagan secular Greek literature, the feminine form is much more prevalent, and you very rarely will have the, um, the masculine form. Uh, and it's, I guess, to be expected among the pagans. Uh, in their mythology, nymphs were uh, demigods. They were kind of woodland spirits associated with water or trees or mountains, and they uh, um, featured in a lot of their mythology and a lot of their uh, perversions. Um, but the Bible, though, uses the masculine form much more frequently than the feminine form. And I, and I find that remarkable. 16 uses here of the masculine. Numphios. N-U-M-P-H-I-O-S. 3566. And it does reference um, a, a person who is, uh, in, in the feminine form, who is of marriageable age. It references that she is not a girl anymore, that she is mature. She is, um, uh, you know, newly matured. She is marriageable, okay? So she's gone through puberty. She's, she's eligible to have babies and, 
and and that. Matthew 9:15 has two uses. Matthew 25, the four uses here. Verse 1, verse 5, verse 6, verse 10. Um, the emphasis on the bridegroom. Okay, for a young man of marriageable age, a young man that's um, virile and strong and healthy and ready to uh, ready to be married and ready to uh, take his bride and begin his family and begin his generational responsibilities. All right, as a man leaves his father and mother and they cleave to one another and the two become one flesh. All right. Matthew 9. The disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn. That is the attendants or the friends, the servants of the nymphias. Bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the nymphias bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So, actually, that'd be a, I think it's three times in verse 15 that that occurs. All right. So Jesus is the bridegroom. I try my wedding ceremonies to spotlight the bridegroom. I understand that traditionally the bride is the celebrity of every wedding. And the bride is the one that has the special music. And the bride is the one who already stands up and watches as she comes walking down the aisle in her pretty white dress. All right. But Scripture makes the emphasis on the nymphias. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And at midnight there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom. Not the bride. Not the bride and the bridegroom. Behold, the bridegroom. He's the point of emphasis. And so uh, I like to quote that verse myself in, uh, in wedding ceremonies when I have the opportunity. All right, Mark 2 is the parallel to Matthew 9. We don't have to read that again. Uh, Luke 5, likewise, verses 34 and 35 is the parallel to Matthew 9 and Mark 2. Uh, we have a bridegroom in John 2. The bridegroom in John 2 is mentioned when Jesus turns the water to wine. And um, the bride's not mentioned in this context. We assume, of course, that she was there. <laughs> All right. Um, But this character, this, this story is interesting because you got a chief wine steward and then you have the head waiter and then he comes to the bridegroom. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. And of course, the bridegroom's clueless. He didn't know what Jesus did. And uh, interesting story there. Three times it's used in John 3.29. John 3.29. He who has the bride, the nymphae, is the bridegroom, is the nymphias. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. And this is the statement of John the Baptist and his humility. He must increase, but I must decrease. So once again, there's the sense of proportion for you. The bride is mentioned once. The bridegroom is mentioned three times in, uh, in this. I think a lot of what we inherited through the Reformation and on into modern Protestant uh, evangelical Christianity, a lot of what we inherited was the feminist Christianity through the Roman Church, where Mary, the Queen of Heaven, was the centerpiece and where the 
the the role of the church as the woman as the bride is the centerpiece and Jesus is almost secondary all right off to the side or where he's mentioned he's just a baby and <laughs> and the emphasis being on the on the woman there anyway different issues related to that finally revelation 18:23 the last use of numphios in the scripture Part of the woe on uh, Babylon, part of their destruction here of commercial Babylon. And uh, the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. Your merchants were the great men of the earth. In other words, here they are living the days of Noah, eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. And God specifically rebukes every one of those items and says, you're done. That's over. Because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And so commercial Babylon comes to an end there at the second advent of Jesus, uh, shortly before the second advent of Jesus Christ. All right, back to Matthew 25 then. Ten virgins, ten lamps, one bridegroom. But five of these fools don't have oil for their lamp. How can you expect to shine forth your light when you don't take the steps necessary to produce that light? All right, point C. The contrast in this parable is foolish versus prudent. The contrast is foolish versus prudent. That's the one item you've got to take away from this. There's one main point, be ready. And then the one uh, principal detail to make that point possible is the contrast that we have here. Foolishness or wisdom? Which track are you going to pursue? Is this, we have in this parable, we have basically... The book of Proverbs distilled into a, into a story. <laughs> okay? Proverbs says you can pursue the path of wisdom or you can pursue the f- path of the fool. By default, that's what you're doing when you walk away from God's wisdom. All right? You're going to lean on your own understanding? You're a fool. You're going to trust in man? You're a fool. Okay? The, the sluggard? You're a fool. Every character that, that is introduced there in the book of Proverbs comes back to fundamentally you avoided God's wisdom you're a fool. Here in uh, this parable, you're either a wise virgin or a foolish virgin. Are you taking the steps necessary? Are you making the preparations? You know what's expected of you. Why would you not bring oil? Why would you not bring oil? You assume somebody else is taking care of that? You've been assigned the responsibility. This is your role. This is your part to play. And this is, uh, I don't know, so descriptive in so many uh, so many ways. Believers, I think maybe in the back of their mind, they, they maybe know that there's things expected of them. But do they put any actual thought into what's expected of them and how do they prepare for that and how do they train for that and how do they, how do they accomplish what it is the Father has for them to do? Or do they just simply float along and figure, well, it'll happen. All right. They're morons. There's your two terms. The contrast in this parable is foolish versus prudent. Now, if you want to do a word study on this, I'm, I'll warn you, you can't limit it to, these, to just these two terms. There's multiple terms you want to look at, and I'll highlight those for you before we depart here today. Morons. I've used moron a couple of times in the last month or so from the pulpit, even on a Sunday morning. Getting a little daring, maybe. Um, 
comes from the Greek moros. Moros. And the sad thing about the moros is that it's unnecessary. All right? You don't have to be a moron. Um, it's, it's, it's a different term than someone who's ignorant. Um, but you can fix that too. This person is not intrinsically stupid. This person is not constitutionally just deficient where you can't help, can't help it. That's, it's turned out to express that. This guy is just the fool and it's his fault. Moros. And at some point we realize that we're all morons to start with, but hopefully we grow out of it and we get equipped, we get trained, we get prepared, and we, uh, we stop being the moron at that point. All right, M-O-R-O-S. The first O is the long O, the omega. The second O is the short O, the omicron. Moros. Number 3474, 12 uses. And uh, the Lord's dealt with these folks already. Matthew 5, 22, Matthew 7, 26, Matthew 23, 17. Uh, those scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he called them fools. Blind men leading blind men into a pit. The three uses here, Matthew 25, verse 2, verse 3, verse 8. Morons, all right, in all of these cases. Uh, are you familiar? Let's see, Matthew 5, 22. I think as we look at each of these, you're going to see there's, there's no need for this. You're foolish, but God's wisdom, if, if you embrace it, okay, Matthew 5.22 Say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, uh, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whosoever says, you moron, you moros, will be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So there's the name calling of that. Matthew 6. Ah, the foolish man is described is contrasted with the wise man in Matthew 7. One of them is going to build a house on the rock. One of them is going to build a house on the, on the sand. Okay. You know the story, right? What does the moron do? Builds his house on the sand. And uh, the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. Now, why is this story so sad? Did it have to happen? Shouldn't he have built his house on the rock? Should he have known better? The other guy did. What was this guy's problem? And it's uh, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them. So they can't claim ignorance. They can't claim that, uh, you know, that humanity wants to deny culpability. We want to say, oh, it's not my fault. The fact is, it is your fault. If you're a fool, it's your fault. You realize that? Ephesians says, do not be foolish. That's an order but understand what the will of the Lord is. So any believer that insists on being a fool is disobedient. Hearing the word and choosing not to act on it. So everyone who hears these words of mine does not act on them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the, the tragedy of it is the very thing they're ignoring, doctrine, is the very thing that will provide them the wisdom they need for making their choices in life, for victory in the angelic conflict, for accomplishing the work assignments, the good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It simply comes down to embracing the provision God has made available. All right. And then they wonder why their life comes crashing down. It's no different than this moron and his house crashing down. 
because the rains came and you're a fool. Use the word of what he provided. It didn't have to happen. All right. I already mentioned the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you fools and blind men leading the blind into a pit. Matthew 23, 17. Uh, Matthew 25 is our text. 1 Corinthians 1. This is the passage that contrasts God's wisdom with the wisdom of this world. And the wisdom of this world thinks that God's wisdom is for morons. You're wasting your time when you come to church. What are you doing reading that Bible? They, of course, are the enlightened ones that are full of the wisdom of this cosmos and and they understand what the modern world's all about, the postmodern world's all about, the world of science is all about. You know, so secure in their in their Big Bang and Darwinian worldview. And you're the moron. As you read that stupid Bible that says, you know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Or you read that Bible that says... Um, so much on the radio has been all about this don't ask, don't tell thing and the homosexuals and the military and stuff like that. And you're the moron that reads the Bible that says that uh, homosexuality is an abomination in the eyes of the Lord. Come on, get with the 21st century already. All right. So that's called, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 25 and 27. 1 Corinthians 3.18, 1 Corinthians 4.10, the other uses of moros in that, in that book. 2 Timothy 2.23. Let's look at that one. 2 Timothy 2.23. I think this goes well to our application. What we have to deal with sometimes in uh, conflicts. We are in God's household. We want to be the honorable vessels, not the dishonorable vessels. In order to be an honorable vessel, we have to cleanse ourselves and uh, be an honorable vessel. We're told in verse 21, sanctified, useful to the Master, prepared for every good work. Context for this is in the household of the Lord and the local church activity. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So once again, we got the local assembly in context. We got the parameters of, of how a local church functions. And then it says, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. So two things, foolish and ignorant. That's the sad thing is that the fool is not ignorant. He ought to know better. But he's ignoring what he knows. He's ignoring what God's told him. He's a fool. And then on top of that, you can have ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. But the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. Now, did we ever depart from a local church context here in this? No. This whole thing, top to bottom, is local church con uh, context. The venue for this entire thing is the local church, the large house. Uh, so the foolish and ignorant speculation, well, nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. And we can, we can uh, discuss the Scriptures. We have to discuss the Scriptures. We can search the Scriptures and see if these things are so. Absolutely. Absolutely. But when we go beyond the Scriptures and bring in human wisdom, what are we doing that for? Foolish and ignorant speculations producing quarrels. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. 
Again, are these the opponents outside the church? No. When did we ever leave the context? The setting has not changed anywhere in, uh, in this entire chapter. These, this opposition is this foolish and ignorant speculations happening in the church, in the flock. Some member, some uh, unstable person. And what, what does the uh, Lord's bondservant do? Kind all, able to teach, patient when wronged. With, gent- in, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Well, what if they don't like that? <laughs> well, if they don't, they don't. God may grant them repentance. They may not respond to the reproof. They may react. In which case, um, you got chapter 3. <laughs> All right. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Prisoners in the angelic conflict. Captivated by the devil. But still planted very firmly within the flock so they can wreak damage there. Titus 3.9 is the last use of it. Titus 3.9. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Again, local church context, more discipline there. All right, so the opposite of foolish. Phronimos, sensible. It's not wisdom, Sophia, but it's the practical way that wisdom is applied in daily circumstances. Phronimos, sensible, sensibility. P-H-R-O-N-I-M-O-S, Phronimos. That has 14 New Testament uses, many of which are in contrast with the Moros application. So you'll see some overlap in some of these. Phronimos, P-H-R-O-N-I-M-O-S, number 5429, 14 New Testament uses. Matthew 7:24, in the same context where we saw the Moros in Matthew 7:26. Also in Matthew 10:16. Matthew 24, 45. Four times in our text today. Matthew 25, verse 2, verse 4, verse 8, verse 9. The Phronimos virgins. Throughout this context, they're all called Phronimos. Luke 12, 42. I love Luke 12. Phronimos. Are we expected to be Phronimos? Yes. In all these applications. Remember, the frame is the mind. This is a thinking term. We're expected to think. Luke 12:42, Luke 16:8, Romans 11:25, Romans 12:16. We'll have both those coming up in a Roman series. 1 Corinthians 4:10, 1 Corinthians 10:15, 2 Corinthians 11:19. That would get further than this today. Um, how many of these do we want to look at? Well, before we look at those, let me just show you some things. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. Um, one of the neat tools you can open up is a word study tool. And so, for example, let's say we just want to look up foolish. And you don't have to know any Greek. You don't have to know any Hebrew. You just have to type foolish. All right. And so 
Let's maximize this. Get rid of that. There we go. So you got some English stuff here at the top, um, some Bible encyclopedias there, and some English dictionaries there. But then you start having your wheels. Your Hebrew wheel, your Greek wheel from the Old Testament, from the New Testament. And here, the New American Standard has the term foolish 51 times. And then going around the circle, these are all the different Hebrew terms that are translated. Now, you don't have to read Hebrew. All you have to do is click. All right? Say, well, this one looks like it has quite a few. And this one looks like it, you don't even have to click. You can just hover, right? And, uh, and so forth. If you know a little bit of Hebrew, then that helps. And you might find, oh, well, here's Nabal, foolish. And I'm used to Nabal. That's seven of the 51. And you can see the verses there. Um, you can see the uses there. So even without reading Hebrew, you can still click and bring up your list and see your different terms. In Greek, now you'll notice some of these are similar and you'll want to incorporate them in your own studies. All right. You want to realize, wait a minute, if I want to study biblical foolishness from the Greek New Testament, I don't want to limit myself just to the moros applications. Because you've got the Moros applications right there. but that's And that's a good chunk of the wheel. That's nine out of the 36 uses, including many of the verses we just looked at. But then we have another Moria. Not Moros, the adjective, but Moria, the noun. And there's five more uses there. Let's go ahead and add those to the other, the other uses that we saw. And we realize, yeah, look at that. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. All these uses here in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 Corinthians 3, they're all in 1 Corinthians. Uses of Moria and uh, several of the Moros applications were also in 1 Corinthians. 125, 127, and 318. So between Moros and Moria, we got quite a bit right there in, in 1 Corinthians. But now we've got another family. You see the family on the left? You've got Ephron right here and Ephaetos right there. Afrasune over here. And then some other minor terms. Asunatos that's used in uh, Romans 1.21. Moraino that's used in 1 Corinthians 1.20. That's actually a verb related to the noun and the adjective that we were discussing earlier. Moraino, not Moreno. Okay. Don't start teasing uh, anyone you know named Moreno. Moraino is our verb to be a fool Has not, or to make foolish. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Anyway, these are some of the tools. If you don't have the Logos Bible software, again, I'm not a salesman. I don't get a commission for this. But it is it is just a blessing. Just pick a word, throw it in there, start looking at it, start finding some verses, dwell on it, meditate on it, pray over it. It is, uh, it is a neat opportunity. So, And those are available. All you got to do is just open up your Word Study Guide, put the Word in there, and there you go. Now, the Word... Uh, for wise, these wise virgins. Likewise, we'll pick this up next week. There's all your Hebrew terms, mainly chacham. But then you have uh, safos, that's our dominant term. But look, franimos is a close, not a close second, but three out of the 24 uses is franimos. All right? Three out of the 24 uses is franimos. Actually, more than that because you got these other ones here too. All right, so that's how those wheels work. They're lots of fun. You can spend hours just looking at wheels, looking at words, realizing, you know what, if I want to study wise, it's more than just sophos or sophia. There's other terms used there too. 
All right, we want to explore all of them. And that's what happens when you click in the middle. You get all your verses, your 19 Sophos verses, your three Phronimos verses, your Para plus Phronimos, and your Phronimos plus how to right there. I'm not sure why they break those down. All right. Well, like I say, we're out of time. One minute over since we started one minute late. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this day, for your truth, for your faithfulness. And as we continue to see, Father, it's not just Matthew. It's all of Scripture. Proverbs, 1 Corinthians, everywhere we turn, the book of James. There's the world's wisdom and there's your wisdom. And Father, we can embrace your wisdom and stand firm upon that rock. Or we can lean on our own understanding, Father, and it's just a, it's just a wreck. It goes downhill so fast. And Father, I pray right now for the believers here and in other churches that they're under teaching, but they're untaught. Stability is provided for them, but they're unstable. The principles are clear, and yet they're unprincipled. And I pray, Father, that we might be watchful, that we might be uh, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen.